Welcome to Think Queerly. I'm your host, Darren Steele, helping people lead from their difference to make a difference. Think Queerly is a queer thought leadership podcast and a publication on Medium at thinkqueerly.com that dissects the status quo through critical analysis and thoughtful dialogue. On the show, I talk about the unique and necessary social and cultural contributions that LGBTQ people offer humanity, and I share my evolving ideas about how we can create a more loving and accepting society for all people. Well, I believe you are in for a treat today. This is a very big episode, and it's important to state that date and the time that this was recorded. Uh, We did this recording on Wednesday, April the 8th, 2020. Um, And it's relevant because I'm titling this HIV AIDS in contrast with the COVID-19 pandemic lessons in history, I think queerly podcast leadership discussion. And where this came from is, you know, two, three weeks ago or so, you started to see in the news, um, individuals were trying to draw comparisons between HIV AIDS and when everything that happened with it, how the government treated gays getting it. And there is no apples to apples comparison. It, it really cannot be compared. We can contrast, we can look at the lessons from history. There were some funny memes kind of going around uh, about three weeks ago, mostly on Instagram. There was uh, statements like, um, straight people be saying, why isn't the government doing something to help control this epidemic before COVID-19 became called a pandemic? And there was a picture of a, a gay guy going, or just the expression of like gay people are like and then just a blank meaning (laughs) we lived through a period and i lived through a period thankfully i got through it healthy on the other side i should phrase that in a different way thankfully i got through it on the other side without uh contracting hiv language is important right um but the fear The absolute fear about my existence and the loss of life, uh, how it was a death sentence at the time when you got HIV and that the government, especially in the United States, wasn't doing anything. And it it took quite some time for things to get better in Canada as well. So we bring, or I brought in two individuals that could bring very unique perspectives on top of my own to really find balance to this conversation. So we've had uh, Jeffrey Yovanone on the podcast before. Quickly going over his background, he's an activist, scholar, writer, educator, and researcher from Buffalo, New York, and he holds a PhD in American studies and specializes in gender and LGBTQ studies. He's the creator of the blog Queer History for the People, a, a columnist on my publication Think Queerly on Medium, and a member of the Buffalo Niagara LGBTQ History Project. Now, Jeffrey introduced me to our other guest, David Butler, uh, who lived through the epidemic as well, uh, five years older than I am in in Buffalo, New York. So David Butler is an eclectic artist, actor, and designer living in Buffalo, New York. And after 30 years as a tradition theater actor and set designer, he has transitioned to work in the motion, motion picture industry as production designer. A number of his films are available on Amazon and Netflix, including After the Sun Fell, Cold Book, the lesbian Thanksgiving coming out comedy Lesbom, and the recently released teen thriller Dead Sound. 
Butler has been an active member of his LGBTQ community since his early days in ACT UP in the late 1980s, and he currently shares facilitation of his hometown LGBTQ Facebook page. And uh, I believe toward the next couple of days, they're going to announce the group's first mini virtual Pride Fest called Pride Inside. And that's important because June is Pride Month and it's going to be held virtually around the world because most of the world is in lockdown. So very briefly, we are going to be looking at, you know, what is a pandemic, the similarities and the differences between uh, the pandemic and the epidemic. Uh, in what ways are they comparable, if at all? And, and, and might that be offensive or triggering to individuals who survived the HIV AIDS pandemic? Uh, comparing that to COVID-19 in this time period, let's, we look at the diseases themselves, uh, government and global response, uh, who's most greatly, greatly affected, fear, misinformation, community response, social distancing and activism, what we're learning as we peel back the layers of the onion and see the greater transparency uh, of society and how people act and react of capitalism and what we have learned from the history of various infectious diseases and pandemics, what we have learned as a community of LGBTQ individuals from the HIV AIDS um, epidemic and and how we can understand that now in the sense of what do we want to do with the world because what we're experiencing and what we're witnessing right now there are a lot of changes for the better to help people but what's going to happen after that's the key question there's a lot of insight on this call i hope you enjoy let's get into it so welcome to another think Queerly Leadership. This time at Discussion, I'm going to be speaking with Jeffrey Yovanone, who I've had on the show a number of times now, and David Butler. Welcome to the call, guys. Thank you for having me. Great to be here. Great to be back. Well, we had a little bit of fun trying to get things uh, properly connected. Welcome to technology. Uh, we're going to be talking about what... <sighs> Maybe we're a little late to the game with this because it sort of made its ugly head and idea in comparison maybe a couple of weeks ago in the news when people, we'll just say people, and we'll get into who those people are, uh, were making comparisons between COVID-19, the novel coronavirus pandemic, and HIV AIDS. And I think we can look at how we can contrast these two things and what what the world was like back in the late 70s and the 80s and into the 90s and how people reacted to HIV AIDS, how people were excluded, how governments acted. And this will probably be much more of a United States-focused conversation since both of my guests live in the United States. But we also want to look at what are the similarities? What are the differences? And how can we, I guess, lead from what we have learned in the past going forward? So, uh, Jeffrey, you had actually come up with this concept originally and, and presented it to me and said, hey, this is something I'd like to talk about. And we want to look at this as a pandemic, a disease epidemic that spreads worldwide. And I'm going to read. Uh, a quote that you provided me. 
from Brian Walsh at the BBC. HIV, a pandemic that is still with us and still lacks a vaccine, has killed an estimated 32 million people and infected 75 million with more added every day. So if that's the starting point, where would you jump in? What would you what would you say about that, Jeff? And I think that this was an important topic to talk about because, well, and, and I should say that, um, you know, I've, uh, in, in terms of the, the HIV AIDS pandemic, um, I've prim- primarily right, looked at it from the perspective of a historian. I was alive at the time. I was, I was born in 1982. Um, which is the the year that the the Centers for Disease Control comes up with the AIDS acronym. But I don't have um, I wasn't cognizant of you know largely of a lot of what was going on at the time. Um, but I, I thought it was in many ways both interesting and troubling. Um, some of the the parallels that people were making um, right and how uh accurate or not accurate um they were and then you know also um people kind of approaching this pandemic um through a lens that maybe wasn't taking into uh account other um pandemics that have occurred within you know recent decades or within our our lifetime and um how that can shape the perspective and wisdom that that we're bringing to the current moment. Okay, actually, to be fully transparent, since you've revealed your age, and you're probably the youngest one on the call. (laughs) (laughs) I was born in 1965. So when I actually formally, I wouldn't say formally came out, uh, that's a mixed message. I suppose when I first went out to the first gay bar in 1984, uh, that was just before Rock Hudson came out. And that was at a time when, yeah, no one really knew what the hell was going on. And here I was just going into the world in Toronto, trying to figure out, like, how do I proceed sexually? Maybe we'll bring David in. And if you're uh, not ashamed or <laughs> of telling us how old you are, so that we can sort of position the generations here. I saw this coming. Yeah. Uh yeah. I got a few years on you and uh, I was, wasn't thinking I was going to have to be honest about my age. Uh, I was was born in 1960. So I kind of, even though I was not in New York or one of the the centers of it, I was still, uh, we were a little delayed here where I am, but um, it came, you know, early nineties is when it started to hit here. So, yeah. And, and, and here at that time was where for you? Uh, I'm in Buffalo, New York. In fact, I was was just out of school and, uh, yeah, and just out of the closet, pretty much, uh, relatively. I had a couple years, I guess, but it was mm-hmm. a really weird time because I had other issues with my family. They weren't dealing with my sexuality, and uh, it was a rough time for a lot of us. Um, yeah. Well, perhaps I'll stick with you for a moment, David, and then I'll move into Jeff for the the same question. In 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 many ways, perhaps it's also the the narrative overall. Uh, it it really seems to have been centered in the United States as how it was covered in the media and you know around the time with Ronald Reagan and and the politics, but also the the major activism that led to ACT UP, which is part of what our where our discussion is going to go. Um, what was the sense? 
maybe start with sort of your perceptions as best as you can recall how you felt about yourself as an emerging emerging gay male coming out into this world where suddenly, bam, you know, I could die from having sex. Wow. Um, well, uh, that's you just pretty much hit it. Uh, as I remember, uh, in those days, the, it was very sexually free. Uh, in fact, I think uh, some of my friends used to have what we would call a lucky spot on the you know near the dance floor. Uh, and then you know it was, you know it was a crazy time. It really was a crazy time. And then there was one, right? Uh, somebody disappeared, or, mm-hmm. or they're in the hospital and they're sick, and then a couple of weeks later they're gone. Uh, and it was shocking. And the the misinformation. I had a friend whose doctor told him that it was only going to hit one percent of the gay population, and he didn't have to worry about it or change any of his uh-huh. behavior. Well, he was number three, right? Uh, and then it was four. Wow. And then it was five and then six, seven, eight. And uh, it got to the point where the, the mourning process was, uh, wasn't happening fast enough. And I just, I remember being literally paralyzed, not being able to get out of bed because I was so emotionally frozen and had become numb that I could hardly function. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, and it was, I mean, it was unbelievable, devasta- unbelievably devastating and not unlike I guess it's, everything is different, but it's sort of the same, is that mm-hmm. the government, certainly Ronald Reagan, was ignoring the issue. Uh, the added issues was the, the stigma of being gay, the stigma of not knowing how it was spread. Uh, horrible things were happening. People uh, were being separated from their lovers because they weren't being considered next of kin. So they were dying in the hospital bed with family that hated them for being gay. Uh, just layers and layers of pain uh, were part of this. And at some point, it became so overwhelming that I heard about this, uh, this organization called ACT UP that was starting. Uh, and it was at the time the only outlet to sort of figure out what to do. So it was like activism that came out of uh, an incredible amount of anger and I guess a necessity. Like I had to do something or I was going to lose my mind. Um, yeah. So uh, Definitely a crazy, uh, crazy time. And it's, I mean, it's, uh, even even now, I'm going through uh, weird flashbacks of, uh, and I'm, I'm actually screaming at people on social media that are doing the same <laughs> things that were happening then, like pointing fingers and, uh, you know, why are they doing that? And uh, miracle cures and all this stuff mm-hmm. all these that were, uh, are happening again. So it's pretty crazy time. Well, I'm going to write down uh, miracle cures and pointing fingers, and I want to come back to that. But um, Jeff, maybe let's, we'll try and move through parts of this almost like a a historical timeline. Um, Maybe give us a bit more of like a historical overview uh, to to back up what, what David was saying from a lived experience, if you would. So we uh, see in the United States in particular, um, the first cases of right, what, what comes to be identified as um, HIV AIDS in uh, late 70s, early 1980s, um, really around um, 1981, there becomes a greater uh, awareness of uh, right, gay men in particular, um, having a, a host of issues 
that are typically associated with uh, people who have compromised immunity. Uh, it's 1982 when the CDC comes up with uh, or adopts the the AIDS acronym. Um, before that, or one of the you know early acronyms they were using uh, was GRID, gay related immune deficiency, right? And so, and like, maybe that's something that, that we can talk uh, more about, like to what extent uh, AIDS was associated with specific um, populations, right? Like particularly uh, gay men, uh, Haitians and injecting drug users. Um, and, you know, is it accurate to say that like COVID-19 is more uh, equal opportunity? So we have this early acronym, right? Where it's associated with um, the, the the gay community. Uh, I always think this is kind of funny, but one of the other uh, acronyms that they were, they were floating around was ACIDS, um, <laughs> Acquired um, com- Community Immune Deficiency Syndrome. Um, a community, right? Obviously, a reference to the to the gay community. Um, I just th- I just think in retrospect, that's kind of funny that they were considering Ray right, calling it acids, um, and, and and then they but when they 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 realize I have more of an understanding of of the the HIV um, virus, which is identified and um, conclusively linked to. AIDS in 1983 by both American and French um, scientists. That's when they really adopt kind of a more um, inclusive acronym because they they realize exactly how the the virus is being um, transmitted, right? Primarily through um, blood, semen, vaginal fluid, uh, breast milk, um, and and right, of course. Um, Throughout the straight entire period, uh, Ronald Reagan is the president of um, the United States. He doesn't even publicly uh, acknowledge or talk about the HIV/AIDS pandemic uh, until 1987, when he has about uh, one year left in office. Um, right, so that that might um, also be. Uh, interesting to think about, are there similar things um, or different things going on when we have um, Reagan, who is completely ignoring uh, a global pandemic um, versus we have um, Donald Trump coming on the television every day and spouting his, you know, self-congratulatory rhetoric about what a great job his administration is allegedly doing to deal with this pandemic. So Jeff, maybe to continue with that thought or, or to, to add something to that, there was a point at which the medical community researchers realized they had to figure out what was going on. Um, and they had to take action and they had to find funding. And that could be a whole other discussion about how the community came to support some of this funding and stuff to, to find a solution, to find out what this was and how this was being transmitted. What was happening in society that made people start to wake up and say, oh, we actually have to find how to determine how this is being spread? I actually think maybe um, uh, David would be a better person to talk about this because he was actually you know, involved in um, 
the the thick of that, right? And that's how we know each other. I interviewed him for um, my my research, and you know, mm. he was involved with um, AIDS community services in, in in Buffalo, but was also on the the activism end of things with ACT UP. So, David, do you want to comment on that from your perspective? Yeah, I, I think um, again, it's a it's a complex question because I think there are there there are local issues there, and then there are national issues. Uh, certainly, you know, people like Magic Johnson and, you know, the national uh, figures that uh, contracted HIV AIDS had a huge effect on a change in the national outlook on it, particularly when it wasn't, you know, gay, a gay person. Uh, I mean, locally, it took uh, a lot of anger and, um, and I guess activism would be the right word to convince uh, local people. Uh, you know, medical professions and organizations to uh, be doing the right thing and, you know, uh, taking care of people in the right way. I remember even we had a protest uh, about someone not being able to speak uh, Spanish uh, in the AIDS organization at the time, uh, because when it started to move into that population, uh, the, you know, sort of straight white or gay, gay white man wasn't as interested even in, at that point in, in helping that population out. So, uh, but it, it was a, a an effort of like in Buffalo, it was ACT UP, uh, which was a very kind of crazy mix of people uh, speaking with a very loud voice about what needed to happen, and and I think it was that you know buildup of death that uh, led us to you know have to uh, raise our voices and show up with signs and sit-ins and and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, and I think, you know, from my uh, perspective, uh, part of the reason why uh, ACT UP is such an interesting organization is um, because it, you know, whether we're talking about New York City or Buffalo or any of the, the other chapters that existed around the country or exist around the world, ACT UP was like outside of um, formal, like government agencies, funding structures, so could could do things that were a bit different, could push the envelope. Because I think, uh, you know, we always have to, to question when we're talking about, you know, scientists or, or researchers, or um, what's the perspective that they're, you know, approaching the situation from, right? Is it, are they researching, um, you know, AIDS or COVID-19 or, or whatever, because they want clout, they want reputation, they want to, to publish, there's funding to be had there, or is there a primary motivating factor um, to actually rate, improve people's lives, save, save people's lives coming from a, a more human rights um, perspective? Because that, right, that was definitely um, the, the case with, with um, HIV. One of the things that, you know, delays some of the research is in 83, the French scientists and the American scientists are like fighting with each other about who gets the the credit for the discovery of the HIV virus, right? Because that has a lot of um, relevance in terms of people's uh, reputations as, as scientists and researchers, um, patents in terms of, you know, test, um, treatment, all of that. So like all of these complicated, uh, ethical issues come into play. And, and still do. I mean, if it's still do, if, if it's, if it is true, what was that a week and a half or two ago when Trump or 
the GOP basically made an offer on a German um, either pharmaceutical or, or, or company that is could have the potential of producing a vaccine, but with what was supposedly the intention to have a monopoly mm. over a vaccine, which is probably more a political motivation to get reelected than anything else, and and more than likely profit driven. Yeah, well, you know, I uh, there's so many issues to be angry about, uh, and it's, yeah. it's sort of um, I I can hardly actually form words about how mm-hmm. this is being handled right now, and. You know, it's funny, Jeff, because I forgot about that French uh, versus American battle mm-hmm. back in those days until you just mentioned it. Uh, but the 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 lack of consideration for human life over profit mm-hmm. is certainly a pattern that we're used to right now in this particular period of American leadership. But it's sort of like unfathomable to me that we would even be talking that way. I think it was the same thing with the test. Isn't there where we offered tests for another country and we refused not to use them because they weren't American made? I mean, it's unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Well, it connected to all of this and, and what Jeff, you were mentioning earlier, we know, and, and David, you might be able to provide some on the ground feedback uh, from your experience in Buffalo or just overall ACT UP, that many of the activists um, at ACT UP took it upon themselves to self-educate, to read some people that had absolutely no knowledge of of medicine, but just started to read and started to research and started to understand. And then these are the ones that went to the pharmaceuticals and, 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 and Fauci doctor, you know, who is still, (laughs) you know, still on the front lines of this and demanded the release of drugs and, and came up with ideas and suggestions that, basically said we are dying and why not test this opportunity to see if it works and in some ways we're we're seeing certain similarities with with particular approaches some good and some not so good but i'd love to hear some of your thoughts or experience in this in this arena david well i think um and this is an issue that comes up uh, when I'm speaking to younger people locally mm-hmm. about, um, you know, why, why do you protest? Why is there a gay pride? And, you know, what it doesn't really do anything. Protests don't do anything. And my theory of that is, is that when we were out on the street yelling and screaming and picketing, it wasn't necessarily doing anything to change the public view, except that we were getting uh, media attention. But what it was doing was giving us a feeling of solidarity and support so that when you uh, you went home or you were at your you know bigoted church or whatever that you had you know hundreds if and if you went to the march on washington which i did you had like hundreds of thousands of people that were behind you in everything you did and that empowered you to do the things that you needed to do to be a better gay person or a better advocate for your friends that were dying so everything that you just mentioned about being self-informed so that you could correct someone who said something wrong about how you got uh, how you got better or how you got infected or you know all the things that we were talking about earlier like miracle cures that it gave you the uh, responsibility because you're now speaking for everyone that you're doing this with and everyone that's part of your community uh, to do it right. And to uh, and to also point out 
uh, when someone was wrong. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think that that's really what, to me, is one of the things that's missing in our country right now is that lack of um, being angry enough to be out on the streets and having that solidarity where people sort of know that uh, you can tell your coming out story to strangers because you're not alone. You, there's a lot of other people that have gone through the same thing that you're going through now. So, and I think that was, uh, it was a hugely self-empowering time for me. Um, I had other things going on with my own like spiritual path and all that sort of stuff. Uh, Cause, and I, in my life I was being, not only were my friends dying, but my, uh, I was in a, a 10 year period where I w- wasn't speaking to my parents. My childhood church that I had grown up in had turned their backs on me this whole thing. So it was, if it were not for that, those friendships and uh, I mean, I guess act up was my church there for a while. Mm-hmm. Like you went there and you met your uh, group of people and you were empowered by them uh, to make your community a better place. Right. Well, there's a couple of uh, differences that are, are touched on um, that, that weren't, you know, voiced directly. I mean, there is the consistent issue of these miracle cures, uh, which is definitely a problem. But we are living in an age with social media where you can find something out and 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 retweet it in 15 seconds. And then within 30 minutes, it's already trending. And how quickly misinformation, but at the same time, how quickly helpful, useful, important information can be spread. But in the 80s, it was you either got that news off the radio, the television, or in the newspapers. So there was a delay. And sometimes this information could have been days or weeks until you got any update about information that could better the lives of of those suffering. So it's an interesting sort of, I don't even want to call it a balance because there's just so many different factors that, that, that play into how this all works. But at the same time, we're starting to see some of the racism, some of the prejudice, some of the xenophobia uh, that's showing up with respect to, you know, how how Trump is calling this the the China virus. And you know, if I can, uh, just yesterday, uh, you know, I work in film, and my partner Seth, uh, we we rent props, and you know, we keep a prop house here in Buffalo, and uh, it took us a while to find it, but we just found some uh, masks uh, yesterday, and I went to our local. Uh, Corona uh, virus Buffalo page and said, Hey, we found these things. We've got some, and it's not like a huge amount. It's a handful, right. Of surgical masks and uh, face shields. What should I do with them? And I didn't, when I, when I posted on this page, I wasn't realized how many people had joined this. And literally within moments, I had a woman offer me any amount of money for these things because she had to go to her doctor. Um, mm. she, uh, she has asthma and she's older. And she said, I will pay anything for one of those things. 30 seconds later, a man, a leader in the black community of Buffalo calls me up and says, people are dying in my neighborhood, which is true right now in Buffalo, mm. the highest rate of infection is in uh, the black community on our east side. Unfortunately, we're very segregated here. And those are the people, ironically, that are working in hospitals right now. And wow. they're not getting the protection that they need. Uh, if, you know, like it's the orderlies and the, the people cleaning and all that sort of stuff. 
And he basically, in the same amount of passion, said, I will come over right now and give those to me. People are dying in my neighborhood, right? And it's it, the difference between the woman that would pay me anything, you know, uh, and the and this this person of color who's trying to save his neighbors. And I'm not even sure if the stuff I have is going to help them. Mm-hmm. But just, but that's it, right? That's it right there happening all over again. Uh, the the woman that's got the money and the and the and the whole population that doesn't that's getting most affected by it. Right. So I mean, all I can do, uh, and that's what I'm going to do when I'm done with you guys, is call recall up the health department and say, what do I do with this stuff? Is it even good? He was actually going to give some of these masks to guys that friends of his that are working at a local supermarket because, which is baffling to me, there are guys that are stocking the the shelves that have no protection at all mm-hmm. right now. Just insane, but that that to me summed up the whole other thing that's going on right now with the you know the inequality of you know financial stuff. And a lot of politicians, right, are saying the right things, but then with the example that David just gave, right, are we actually uh, giving people, especially uh, people who are from the the hardest hit? Um, population, right? Because all of this information is now um, coming out. And I'm, I'm sure as we continue to study the pandemic, it's only going to be added to and further solidified um, that the, the COVID-19 is disproportionately affecting um, the African-American population for a variety of different reasons, right? The connection between um, socioeconomic status and race in this country. Uh, people, because of, you know, whether um, genetically or the um, the racism or the oppression that that they face, um, are more likely to experience uh, underlying health conditions that um, are exacerbated with um, COVID nineteen or or are or risk factors, um, right? Are we just like spouting this information to seem um, inclusive or are we actually uh, protecting these people? And are, are we actually, are we making um, decisions that are, are actually based in sound fact or are we just kind of giving things, are giving, giving ourselves over to, um, you know, fear and hysteria and anxiety. Um, you know, I, I find it you know, so interesting with, you know, the, uh, the, the miracle cures quote unquote, and, uh, and just the, the overall climate of fear, this, you know, huge, um, push that, that we see you know, in the media, on social media for, uh, people to be wearing cloth masks, right. Um, um, based on what, what I've seen, there's no, uh, science that shows like a homemade mask is, is, is at all effective in terms of, uh, protecting the general public from, you know, not just COVID-19, but, but, you know, viruses, uh, period. Uh, but yet like we're all engaging in, uh, in this practice, right. And, and Darren, as you mentioned, that was, um, uh, such an important part of the community response during the HIV AIDS pandemic, actually seeking out the science because people felt like they weren't getting that from the government or from politicians or from people that, or uh, that, that 
you know, were supposed to be giving us that information about how to protect ourselves and actually right, seeking, seeking that out, becoming experts about their own experience as opposed to leaving it in the hands of the privileged and the powerful mm-hmm. uh, as a way to right, take that, impl- that information and um, implement it in the community. And so I, w- I would actually be interested in hearing, you know, from uh, both of your perspectives, because you're, you were more aware of, you know, what was going on when it was going on. Um, do you see some similar parallels in terms of the, the way that uh, people are acting out of, out of fear? David, I'll let you start. Uh, yeah, yeah, yes, of course it, it's different because it's everybody right now. Um, you know, I was, I think I mentioned this to you, Jeff, uh, a while ago, I used the term, uh, Russian roulette for that same, you know, dance floor thing, even when it, became, it was obvious that it was dangerous to be having sex with another guy unprotected, um, that people were still doing it. And I, I think it had to do with, uh, you know, self-esteem and, you know, all that. So it was a little bit of a Russian roulette game when you were, uh, you know, playing around. And and now it's the same thing uh, with social distancing. It's like there's people that are, you know, usually I think it's young people mainly that are like, well, this isn't going to affect me. So I'm going to go out and mm-hmm. hang with my friends. And, and I think I made a joke with you, uh, Jeff, the other day about, the fact that our social distancing was the thickness of a condom, right? In those days. So, uh, but people are reacting very similarly and I don't really understand that. And I, and I well, I kind of do. I think there's a lot of anger towards the establishment, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, so when authority tells you, you shouldn't do this, it's like, well, you know, screw you. You've already ruined the environment. You've done all these things. Why should I listen to anything you say? Um, but unfortunately, the, the risks on this are it's a life or death thing. Uh, and then the other side of it is the, uh, the, the people pointing fingers uh, in this same group that I mentioned that I posted about the masks. There was somebody that was complaining, uh, like horrified that somebody was having a yard sale during this whole thing. Mm. And I guess if you if you step if you're if you're going to stay within the rules and say you know six feet six feet, but then you got to step back and go well if that person has been unemployed for three mm-hmm. weeks they may be having a yard sale because they don't have any food in the house. Mm-hmm. So to be judging people without knowing what their whole story is, right. uh, it becomes this complex, you know, uh, self policing thing. But if you really you know, I know it's that whole pointing fingers thing and how it. Uh, it doesn't work very well if you really don't know what the whole story is. And what you said, well, I think what you just was said is so uh, significant because um, social distancing, when we're, t- you know, and uh, I don't think that uh, phrase was used during the the HIV AIDS pandemic, but right, if we could apply that concept, um, it it looked different, right? Because we're talking about the um, these the viruses were spread in in very different ways right like airborne versus um bodily fluids and then what does that that mean um you know if there's kind of all this anger all this fear people want to to do something and with the hiv aids epidemic right um uh because of the the nature of that people could still um 
come together uh, physically in certain um, ways in terms of, you know, working together, forming um, community. And then what does that look like in, in this context when, um, you know, in order to save people's lives or to deal with this situation, um, we're supposed to be physically apart? There's um, a couple of interesting things to sort of contrast here um, that that both of you have added to, and I want to just make sure I say them both. So if I, if I break it down exactly, David, what you mentioned, gay shame, or call it any aspect of shame that's associated with having been in the closet and having had to repress your true gender and or sexual identity because the world told you that it was wrong, you're bad, you're evil, you're a sinner, or whatever the case may be, which creates a kind of internalized homophobia until you sort of get over it. So I look at my time growing up, adolescence in the 70s, and I had great parents, but I never talked to, to them about who I was and who I was becoming. And then when I finally went out into the gay world at just 19 in 1984, and then literally find out that, oh, sex could kill you. It's human nature. And, you know, at the level of one of our more ancient brains, the mammalian brain that seeks comfort, that seeks connection, that's, that is developed as we are brought up from babies into children, that that nurturing and nourishment that we get from our mother or our parents that make us feel love and we get touch, we get connection. And if you don't have those things, that comes out in in, in different ways and how one behaves or or has problems in relating to other people. So when you're young, and I think David or Jeff, you said that you feel invincible. So there's that aspect. And then you're thinking, but it's 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 sex, and literally, another part of your brain takes over and overrides the thinking brain and just goes ahead. Mm-hmm. And 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 we saw that happen like after a decade and fifteen and twenty years when people started getting condom fatigue before the retro antivirals came out or the retrovirals came out, and then people thought, ah, oh, I just I you know I just wanna I just wanna right, and, and there was no logical reason for it it was just ancient primal behavior and the only and to say similarity is such a, a challenging word that the, the social distancing or the physical distancing and the, i guess we could say the social isolation that we have to do right now shows us what a privilege we've had in being able to go out and connect with other people because this is an airborne um, virus mm. and i think jeff as you said as gay men, or as a sexual population that was dealing with HIV AIDS, you could still come together. And then people were starting to have safer sex parties, and people were coming up with different ways. Um, you know, I remember, I don't know whether it was the, maybe it was sometime in the very early 90s or whatever, I went to go visit a friend who lived in uh, LA, and then we went to San Francisco, and we went out to all the bathhouses had been closed, but they had sex clubs. And that was my first time going into a sex club versus a bathhouse, where you were required to take off your shirt, but you, I think, could leave on your pants and everything was open. <laughs> but the whole change was there weren't private rooms for you to have sex so that you could you could jerk off or you could have oral sex or that if you were having anal sex, people could see 
which provided a voyeuristic aspect, but then people could could call you on not wearing a condom, just like people now could call you on not physical distancing. And just to, to, to wrap up, because David, you made a really, really important point. And yes, this is happening in other parts of the world, but I think the, 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 the place that's got the biggest challenge right now is in the States with the lack of trust in leadership. And so the perhaps... Oh, it sounds terrible when I say it, but the maybe maybe I shouldn't say it. I'm going to say it anyway. The less than educated public, and that's not meant to be a judgment, it's just an observation, has rightly so lost trust in a leadership because the leadership lies to them. The leadership is only interested in themselves, and the leadership is only diverting funds to the privileged. Um, and so we have a pandemic on another sense, or in another sense, which is ineffective leadership, you know, a, a capitalism that has gone on a rampage and assumes that there's going to be like completely sustainable growth, which is a contradiction. And all of those social issues and human behavior issues wrapped up into one with some countries that are doing a good job saying to its its population, this is so important because here's all the reasons we're being transparent. We're going to do the best to help you. Okay. We're missing something. We're going to go back and we're going to discuss how we're going to help uh, populations that we haven't, parts of the country that we haven't yet been able to properly help to get through this time of isolation. That was a lot. So I don't know who wants to pop in on top of that. Uh. <laughs> Uh, I don't even know where to again to start again when it comes to our uh, our country's leadership and the um, not only the the lack of education but there's a lack of wanting to be educated. Um, and I will admit that my my own mom, who I love dearly, who is in an assisted living place locked in her room right now in Virginia, uh, said to me that isn't this China's fault because they eat bats? And I'm mm -hmm. like, what? Like, and I know where she's getting this from, but you know, the, if I'm going to tangent a little bit, the, the one thing that I think you guys mentioned that we, we didn't have before was the internet. And, and I think the right. one thing that's good about what's happening is that we're all doing a deep dive into how the internet can work. I mean, there's a lot of things that are happening that, uh, ways to, to communicate more deeply with people that. We never thought about before because now we have to, but uh, the insane uh, uh, volume of the uneducated, and I and I hate using that term too, but uh, it's like this brainwashed uh, section of of America that won't even listen to reason, and I don't know how you fix that. Um, I'm sort of hoping that this disaster might wake some people up. But it's so incredibly frustrating, and it does it does feel like what was going on, uh, you know, in those bad days for me when uh, you know people were being you know kept out of hospitals or you know the nurses were in that in that initial phase where we didn't know what it was that were not uh, they refused to take care of people because they were afraid they were going to get it. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's it's just a crazy like we don't even know how we're going to vote. We got a presidential election and we don't even yes. know how we're going to vote. Like, I don't know if you saw the, the images of Wisconsin yesterday 
where the people facilitating the primary election were in hazmat suits with masks. It's like something out of a science fiction movie. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not sure if I'm, I'm referencing your question. I have a tendency to tangent, but um no, I think I'm the one responsible for going on quite a tangent. Although I was trying to pull a, a, a quite a few threads together because this isn't a simple black and white issue, right? And you know, it's it's to come to to, to contrast this the 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 epidemic of HIV/AIDS and the pandemic of COVID nineteen is 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 useful in the framing of, and maybe this is sort of where we want to go next. And you know, Jeff, you had provided me with some of these uh, thoughtful questions that, that, you know, historians have for a long time argued that infectious diseases have changed the course of humanity through throughout history. And we're talking about something that we can look at back. So something that we can look at now in the past, if we're just looking at HIV and AIDS and something that we've had some understanding about with relation to SARS and now COVID-19 is very unique in how the world is is shutting down and that that just takes us into the next you know question you know what are the aspects of of both hiv aids that we learned that can help uh, influence our approach for not only how we handle things in the future around potential outbreaks again but how we want to reshape humanity for the better which goes back to what you asked as a question, David, you know, how to, how about these people who don't want to be educated? What this is, this is nature's way of waking up the other virus on the planet, human beings, <laughs> right? Yeah, we're on the same page with that. I, yeah, I think yeah. This is a little bit of thinning of the herd maybe. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, again, this is a, it's a very, uh, intense question. There's so many different aspects of it. I, I know that what got me through the rough years of HIV AIDS was the coming together of uh, a group of people that, who I'm still friends with to this day. Uh, I learned how to deal with uh, mourning and death uh, at way too young an age. Uh, and I think there there is an importance to um, learning to let go of what you can't affect. Uh, and the people that we're talking about, I'm not going to change anybody's mind on that. Uh, and I can waste a lot of energy trying to do that. But what I can do is help the people closest to me, try to try to learn how to be better uh, at the good things that I try to do. Uh, you know, keeping an eye on people, uh, you know, just, you know, bringing the community together. So when it's time, uh, mm-hmm to actually affect change that we have, it goes back to what I was saying before, we have uh, a family of people across boards. It's like reaching across uh, racial lines and economic lines and, uh, and helping each other. It's because uh, this, this, uh, this illness is not, has nothing to do with that. Right. So it's, it's those kind of, uh, you know, forward moving uh, aspects that we all need to be looking at right now. And and I think, like I said, I think the way we use social media, uh, which was certainly, you know, heading in a stupid direction. Now, I think when I see all the things that people are doing uh, to connect, it's actually pretty cool. You know, this 
question that I uh, had uh, posed to you about uh, pandemics changing the course of history, I think it's a very essential question. In a big picture sense, it makes me very nervous to think about um, because we're in the middle of things, right? And so like things could go either way. And so, right. So it could be um, an opportunity for um, the general public or average citizens to say, you know, like this crisis is really exposing how there's a lot of things that aren't working in our society, uh, right? Like suddenly the the issue of, of having your health care attached to your job makes no sense in the context of a global pandemic where in order to right, deal with those conditions, there has to be physical distancing, only essential businesses, so people are out of work. But then in the context of uh, you know, a time when people really need healthcare, you're out of work, your healthcare is tied to your job, you no longer, uh, you, or you, you're less able to access the the care that you need, uh, among, a, you know, a host of so many other um, issues. Uh, so, right, it could be an opportunity to say, like, this is really exposing um, the way that society is not working as, as well as it could. Let's work for something different. Let's, um, let's demand something better um or ray it could be uh and we're we're already seeing this it, or it could be an opportunity for um those in power to further consolidate their agenda um because you know i think one of the the interesting parallels that we see and um some people are talking about this as a difference between the HIV AIDS pandemic and, and COVID-19. So, you know, for example, Edmund uh, White wrote this op-ed for the guardian and he points out, you know, well, a difference is that Reagan ignored the, the pandemic and now Trump is, Trump is, you know, um, talking about it nonstop in these daily briefings. But I actually think that that's a, a similarity because we see uh, politicians, their approach to the pandemic is what benefits um, them and people like them the most, right? So at the time, um, Reagan being a, a conservative, it uh, benefited him um, politically to ignore um, a pandemic that was right, associated with a you know, population that was vilified by um, his party and by um, the, the radical right in America um, and religious conservatives. And then on the other hand, right, it, um, it benefits um, Trump in, in certain ways to uh, essentially kind of embrace the, the, the crisis. He's using it as an opportunity, um, to, you know, make a case about how great he is or what, you know, what a good job he's doing. I mean, I think he's essentially like treating, um, the briefings as, a way to campaign for his reelection when it shouldn't be about him. It should be about the people and it should be about sharing information and what the government is doing to deal um, 
to deal with the the situation and it you know it reminds me very much of um naomi klein who's a canadian journalist um in her work she uses this phrase disaster capitalism so uh basically how um in a situation of disaster or crisis um capitalists or those in power will use and exploit the crisis to benefit their own agenda um you know, and, and it's also like, what do we do? Because, um, you know, as David was talking about, uh, you know, he said, you know, I think people don't have the same level of outrage. We're not um, out in the in the street. We're not coming together, protesting all these injustices. Um, so right, if we're kind of, uh, the crisis has given us a new perspective and, um, we realize, like, okay, there's a lot of changes that that need to be made. Um, how do we come together at this moment to do that, given all of the restrictions? What does that look like? Um, and as David right, rightly pointed out, we don't even know how we're going to have an election or vote um, in November. Right, one of the primary ways that we can create change is now been thrown into uncertainty. I was just leaving space in case David, you were going to pop in on there. Uh, okay. <laughs> that was a lot. I'm sorry. Basically, referenced all the things that I was thinking about very eloquently. So, <laughs> yeah, it's just it is a a crazy freaking time. I mean, uh, I, I want this president out so bad. Uh, I want to go there myself. <laughs> to Washington and pull them out. I'll of- go with you. <laughs> I got, well, there's a lot of people that feel the way we do. And so now on top of a pandemic, we have this, like, this crazy thing going on. I mean, the stress just keeps getting, like, more and more. Like, I don't know how, uh, you know, obviously we're living through a, a period in history of how <clears throat> how this happens and how we react to it. And there's a part of me that thinks that um, the this social media is the reason why we're not getting together. I mean, before this, the social distancing issue is that the, uh, the internet has, is, uh, how do I say this? Reduce the need. Like you, you release your anger in a Facebook post that people may or may not read. And that sort of dispels the energy that might have in another time. Had you call up your friends to meet you know, at city hall. Uh, but it doesn't, it's almost like a trick because it doesn't do anything because mm-hmm. you're not getting that feeling of, uh, direct eye to eye connection with people. Uh, and that thing I was talking about before of a solidarity to actually, uh, protest and organize in a way that's going to make change happen. Maybe now because we're forced to stay in our homes that it will, that will develop, you know, you know, through social media. So I don't know. I don't know. It's a, there's a lot of ifs right now. It's very frustrating, though. I tell you. There's there's definitely a lot of ifs, and you know, one of the a couple of the challenges uh, in relation to the change in the amount of protests. I think that you brought up is that um, in our information age, we're you know we have more access to a lot more information. Sorry for the rhetoric. Um, and that sometimes dilutes um, sort of the urgency or the pressing need. But there still have been, you know, protests, but they usually 
are a collection of very something very focused, like the the Me Too movement, or something to do with race, or you know, probably the last really big ones were um, the right to marry in the United States. All of the protests that went around with respect to that. So they they still happen, but we are aware of far more issues that. Yeah, we all have issues, <laughs> but there are so many more issues that um, they just become smaller in their own way. And now we're seeing this as the world. So I think where we're at, so a couple of podcasts ago, um, and it was a question uh, a coach that I follow presented was this, like, who do you want to be? during this pandemic. And it just hit me because it is so easy and normal human behavior to do what you said, David, you just vent your anger on social media. I'm like, that's it. I can't, I can't myself do this anymore. That's not who I want to be on social media. That's not who I want to be as a messenger. That's not who I want to be as a queer advocate. Um, that there's, there's, there's definitely a time and a place for the jumping up and down and the protesting. And that doesn't mean I won't do that. But on social media, what if I come across as a voice of reason? What if I come across as a voice to make people think? And what if more people across the world use social media for that, that help people to start question? And at the very opposite end of the spectrum, the people that, like you said, David, that just don't want to be educated or the the super far off the deep end religious individuals that are bathed in the blood of Christ and aren't worried about being affected by this and still going to mass church gatherings when someone in their family gets it, unfortunately that's going to be the similarity to the person who got HIV early on. And then their family finally realized that they were being shipped to this person and they open up and they take them in. And they change mm-hmm. their hearts and minds. So it's either going to be one extreme, which is the better mindfulness, honest attempt at connection, support. And I'll just like, and this bit that I'm sharing with, uh, at least in Toronto, 7.30 PM evenings is the general, uh, uh, shift change for nurses and doctors. So we are doing that wherever you are, just banging pots and pans for a minute or five minutes. And it's been getting ever louder in the last sort of about nine or 10 days that it started. And I well up, like my chest feels like it's going to constrict, like I'm going to start crying because you think this, this is one hell of a fucking defining moment for human beings to recognize what people are sacrificing. And that 10% of the healthcare workforce is infected. I know that they're doing that same uh, thing in New York. I have a friend who's an actor. He's actually doing a kid's show out of his uh, small apartment mm-hmm. uh, now uh, online. Uh, and he goes up to the rooftop every day to be a part of that same experience in New York. And he, he basically admits to crying uh, because mm-hmm. it's so powerful. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's like the, the, uh, the AIDS quilt uh, yeah. was uh, a symbol of, and I, I remember uh, when that came to Buffalo, a piece of it, that I was actually in a musical as an actor about the quilt at the time. And by the time we had, uh, we'd already performed it a couple weekends and then the quilt came to town and we performed in front of it. And, uh, I'm like, Oh, well, I'm going to be fine walking around. 
And it was like seconds after walking around that I found names that I didn't know about. And I burst into tears. And there was this community of people that came and hugged you. And uh, it was a, like a wonderful uh, thing. It was, it was a, uh, a huge art piece for uh, release. And, and I think those moments like you're talking about with the making noise uh, for our medical workers uh, is that sort of a thing. It's a coming together moment that's also released. And it's sort of what I was talking about before. It's that, it's that moment of solidarity where all these people, you can't even see them, right? But you hear them. And you know that they're yeah. there. So I don't know. That's really interesting. Maybe that's the new, maybe that's the new uh, social distancing protest is yeah. that kind of thing. So, yeah. What's wow. interesting, you use that word new social distancing protest where it's, <laughs> it's like an, a, a way of creating awareness. But when you are put into that state, if you are triggered in a positive way by hearing that, that those pots and pans and knowing what that means it it reminds you of how uncomfortable this situation is how disruptive this situation is it reminds you of maybe things you read in the news like i i wasn't aware of this till two days ago i was reading the the challenge of truckers that are transporting goods and all the washrooms are closed and they're having troubles getting food and then there are various truck stops where people that are in that community are now preparing meals so that the truckers know they can stop and they can pick up a meal. Um, and, and you start to see the layers of the onion being peeled back. Like for example, <laughs> not even being aware and realizing now that yes, Canada still has slaves. They're called migrant workers mm -hmm. and they've made an allowance for them to be able to come into Canada, but they have to be uh, quarantined for 14 days before they can start working on our farms so they continue to provide produce. Well, I know the same thing is true of the United States. And I'm like, really? Where I, I this is just my own ignorance. And this is this is the transparency that this pandemic is exposing. I have a friend who is a UPS worker uh, in Virginia, a queer friend, and he uh, I was checking up on him uh, like a week ago, and UPS drivers have no way to wash their hands. They haven't been provided hand sanitizers or even gloves. Mm. Think about how ridiculous that is. If this stuff can stay in a box for three days, it's insane that that, that kind of thing, that's sort of what you're talking about. They're not slaves. They're getting paid. But they're not being treated as though their lives are important, mm -hmm. right? So uh, again, like it's like you said, and I, I don't know if you guys heard this, but uh, Fauci was just on yesterday. In fact, Seth just told me about it before we got on. Was talking about the similarity between um, uh, AIDS and uh, and now, and he mentioned exactly the things we're talking about, which is the racism and the you know financial divide, uh, but also the coming together. Mm -hmm. So uh, interesting. That's something to reference, maybe. Mm, and it's so funny that uh, I mean, at the time, in the you know late eighties, early nineties, like uh, Fauci was very much uh, the the villain in some ways, mm -hmm. um, right? Because uh, the the community was arguing that uh, he wasn't. Um, going fast enough in terms of um, drug trials and the approval um, process and uh, right, testing new um, medications that could be potentially life-saving. And, and, and that's like still, um, you know, very much his 
approach like he's very methodical with that and, and you know what he's saying now it's like you know no we have to like test the drugs and we have to see see the research before we just start um giving things to people but in the in contrast to um you know donald trump right he's very much being seen as the voice of of reason and uh you know the, the, that's seen as like a positive quality um now whereas as in the 80s people were kind of vilifying um him for being like too slow and too um too methodical with with his approach to to that pandemic i i think the the irony is like i think sort of what you're referencing jeff is that now he seems like he's uh the the person that should be leading all this without having to you know, um, keep dropping his face or being eliminated from meetings uh, or uh, mm-hmm. press conferences because he's obviously disgusted with what the president, uh, the lies the president are saying. So, uh, yeah, just uh, crazy, crazy time. Well, I also think too that, you know, David, the story that you're telling with your, your friend who's the UPS worker, that's like another example about how this is, you know, really a tipping point moment because I think suddenly we see, you know, people who we often take for granted. Um, you know, I, I we probably don't take, you know, healthcare workers for granted, but um, probably don't give them, you know, enough. Um respect and credit, but, you know, people who work, um, in the postal service or, um, truck drivers or grocery store clerks or a, any sort of, um, food service that, that we might, um, overlook and see them as not being, you know, that essential in comparison to, you know, some other, uh, professions that, that we attach a lot of prestige to, you know, I think we're now realizing, or at least I hope we're realizing how um, vital um, the these people are in terms of, you know, allowing society to, to keep functioning. And so, you know, going forward, are we going to have more of a, um, a recognition um, of that? Are we going to, you know, give people, uh, you know, raises and more um, protective gear and, and things that they, they need to be able to do their job and have a more livable life? Or are we just going to go back to the way things, you know, were before and then, um, you know, I- I- ignore the, the people that are, are performing the, the truly essential functions in society, but that's not reflected in their salary or the level of appreciation that, that they receive? Yeah. No, that's I, I, interesting because um law laws sort of the big i can't remember if they're across all of canada but they're the sort of the big grocery store chain and they own another uh, a couple of other sub brands under that um galen weston who runs it now i mean this has been in an older canadian family with a lot of historical wealth that that have managed this and they've raised the wage by $2 an hour or something like that for the majority of the people that work there, which is great. And it's kind of like hazard pay is what they're calling it. Mm -hmm. And it's an interesting question. Will they maintain that? Because it wasn't so long ago. uh, It was sometime last year. um, 
uh, something to do with like a taxation change at either the provincial or the federal level. And then Lavos was complaining, well, if we do this and if we're, oh yes, it was the requirement to come up to a new level of minimum wage. And they were saying, well, if we do that, we're going to have to lay off some staff or we're going to have to lay off some management because, you know, that's going to cut into our profits, 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 profits. Very different turn of events now. I mean, you could be cynical and say, well, they're doing this because this is good branding. You could also say they're doing this because it's the right thing to do. I'm leaning more on the latter. It, it is the right thing to do. The question is that we've mentioned a couple of times here is what are they going to do after? Mm-hmm. And I, I love this conversation because I every time I go into the grocery store, I, I shared this with you, Jeffrey, uh, and it's becoming less. I stress sweat uh, because I'm, I'm I'm looking around every corner. Am I am I? practicing enough distancing. Oh, there's somebody stocking shelves. Crap. I want to be out of their way. And they've got uh, little dots on the floor so you can stand far enough away from people. They've now cleared the uh, walkway in front of where the cashiers are. So no one will be standing there. So if somebody's standing to go in line, you can go across diagonally then to go to wherever you're going to go shopping. They've got a barrier on one side of the cashier and they've got a plexiglass barrier on the other side where you would then pay so that they wouldn't get any basically moisture or spit uh, on them. And you recognize, wow, I've just applied for a benefit from the federal government, which I just received and I'm really most grateful for today, but these people are actually having to work. Mm -hmm. And they're I don't know if they're making as much as that benefit is. Is is that fair? I mean, of course, no. I don't think it is fair. Uh, but these are these are the larger social questions, and I think on some level, it's giving for those who want to use it. It's giving more people a voice, like at the extreme end and i'll wrap up this thought you know you look at brazil and bolsonaro who's just a fucking wingnut um going out and shaking hands and all this nonsense and saying it's a joke and saying it's like a conspiracy but the majority of his uh, of the governors of the different states in brazil that supported him and wanted him into power are like this guy's a nut we're going to like shut down this region. We're going to tell people what to do based on what the WHO is saying. So at that level, individual voices are coming through. At that level, I know in the States, many um, states are taking more proactive measures than what Trump is doing. Mm-hmm. In, in Canada, it's across the board agreement and cohesion. There is very little partisan politics going on. It's about how are we going to get through this and how are we going to minimize the loss of life? I think one of the, you know, the big fundamental questions this raises though, is that, you know, um, uh, whether we're talking about, you know, the U S or, um, Canada, because we see, uh, similar things occurring, although I think, uh, Canada has done it better in terms of the level of, of support that, uh, is being given to Canadian citizens, you know, Darren, feel free to, to disagree, but, um, it's like, oh, we can give, or governments can give, um, support and benefits to people that are struggling through this crisis. Why can't we do that all the time? Or mm. why is it that uh, this situation um, merits the government actually supporting people in 
in certain ways, but then that same logic isn't applied to people who are struggling in a, in a different um, context, right? Why are we uh, you know, seeing people's humanity more in this situation, but then why have we been denying that humanity in other situations? You know, I just, I'm, I'm just wanted, uh, something's on my head, I mean, if I get that out, I just wanted, I'm going to go back a little bit to the, um, sure. just the, the process of, of learning uh, and how things are changing so much. So this is a little bit of an aside, I guess, but uh, we're talking about the, the actual practicality of going through a supermarket. Like I, uh, just like a week ago, I had this whole system that I thought was so clever that I would uh, leave my car with my reusable bags, uh, helping the environment. And I would shop from my bags without ever having to touch a cart, which I thought was really smart because I don't have to worry about having to wipe the cart off. Mm -hmm. uh, and I did this for like, I think two shopping trips. And then I walked into our local uh, large department or uh, grocery store, which is Wegmans. And there was a sign that says, you can no longer shop from your, your own bags. And I'm like, damn yeah. it. <laughs> I'm sure yeah. people were shoplifting, right? Yeah. Uh, that was probably why. But it's just no. It's 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 because of the potential for transfer um, of of coming in with reusable bags. They may have the virus on it. Oh, I didn't even think of that. Right, because that. then the the um, the employees have to touch your bags. Uh, well, that could be fun in some situations, but not all. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, humor. We need humor right now more than ever. <laughs> oh man. Uh, Sorry. Well, I think we're going to get through this. Uh, yeah. I have a tendency to be um, a diehard optimist. I mean, again, I have I have a lot of international friends, uh, social media case sites and stuff, and uh, there's always someone that has it worse. I had a, a brief conversation with a friend of mine uh, who is in Bangladesh, and he said there are bodies on the street. Mm, so, wow. uh, you know, you know, in the big global picture, uh, it mm -hmm. could be a lot worse. Uh, yeah. So uh, I guess a, that was a sobering um, statement that I read on that. Yeah. I have a question I want to ask uh, both of you to to reflect on. Uh, you know, one of the things I was really thinking about is um, in terms of the media coverage when you know people are are talking about the the current crisis. Um, right? They keep saying things like the the virus, the virus, and and. Uh, from my perspective, I'm like, oh, that's so uh, interesting and also troubling because like me as a historian, when I think about the virus, I immediately go to HIV AIDS, right? Um, so I'm, I'm wondering from both of your perspectives, is there, is there anything that, you know, is going on uh, right now or that you've encountered or that you've heard in the, the media um, that has like really brought you back to earlier experiences um you know it, it in your life in terms of um is it is it challenging right for people who um live through the hiv aids epidemic um to now have to live through this current moment um carrying the the historical weight of what came before uh for me, the, the biggest one, um, which ironically, uh, because we are now hitting allergy season, uh, is the remembrance of every sniffle, every scratchy throat, uh, every hack or blowing of the nose 
in those years was terrifying. And yeah. some of that is back again. And mm -hmm. I will tell you that I started a film. Um, actually, I worked on a film that actually came down from Toronto. Uh, it was Guillermo del Toro's uh, most recent uh, film. This is like about a month ago. And uh, something went through the office. I mean, I, uh, and it's funny cause my, my partner Seth mentioned that you, you know, you remember you said that you couldn't smell anything and I'm like, Oh my God, did I have this already? Cause I had a headache. I had a little bit of a sore throat, but it never, you know, blew up into anything. Um, but there's that feeling. It's like, wait, did I have it already? And did I pass it around from, mm -hmm. it from cause we're all people from all over the place too, from Toronto and LA and New York and everything. We're all sharing offices. So that, uh, and, and now that, uh, like just last week, I would say maybe four days ago, I was getting wheezy. And I'm like, I forget that it's like, wait, I get wheezy this time every year because the trees are having sex with each other, right? So that, that I think is the thing that's most, uh, that's most paralleling for me is, the, is that fear of your own body's reaction to things. And is, is it my turn, right? Is this me? Uh, and that went on. I was so terrified. I actually hadn't thought about that. Um, uh, the, the, for lack of a better word, I guess, no, I won't say fortunate, but I wasn't exposed to a lot of loss um, during HIV AIDS, um, like compared to what, what you shared with us, David. But I remember those experiences every single time. So this would have been the 80s and the 90s solid um where you would think i don't know why i just remember like if i was sweating at night thinking oh my god have i got night sweats which was you know one mm. of the the big yep. sort of giveaways and if you had any kind of slip up any kind of sexual slip up with a condom or you were just doing human behavior and maybe weren't the best but you were then playing safer sex for the rest of it then it would be like for you know days and weeks after but just yeah that i think it's been for so long and that i've been in a relationship with my partner for quite a long time that we know what our you know safer sexual practices are that that has really sort of like come down in my own life as a worry but it is still there um like I was saying, the, the the running around getting the stress sweat. I remember the first time that happened when I came back from the grocery store during the first uh, the first week of lockdown. I thought, "Oh my God, have I got COVID?" Yep. And it was like, "No, Darren, you're just stress sweating." <laughs> but it it is, um, you know, because we know that the initial symptoms may seem like the flu. And I certainly don't want to sound like the person who's coming across that making it com comparison, but we know that the symptoms are, are also very unique and specific. And we're also starting to learn more things like the potential for the loss of smell or uh, dizziness um, in the sense of a lack of balance in very, some very rare cases. This is just some news I was reading today. So um, I, I think, and then going back to your point, Jeff, about the languaging, um, I haven't noticed that for myself. I, I think a couple of people I know in Toronto that have been HIV positive for quite some time um, are immediately triggered by anything, um, any kind of headline uh, that does that associates 
the words HIV AIDS with COVID-19. They just don't want to read it. It's just, it's very adamant, an immediate reaction. And there's a lot of emotional, physiologically attached emotional history, suffering, pain, probably having been in the hospital, probably having maybe gone through a period of being ill and then getting on the life-saving medication. And that's a tremendous existential experience that you know, changes how someone thinks and, and views the world and uh, certainly becomes a, a, a learned, uh, not so much a pattern, but a, a learned experience that is going to turn on that fight or flight or freeze mechanism as an initial response. And I would imagine that for some people, uh, it brings up a lot of what ifs. Mm -hmm. So, right, what if in the 80s, the government um, or governments around the world had had a different response? Mm -hmm. What what difference would would that have have made? Because mm -hmm. uh, one of the you know the things that you were talking about that that uh, came to mind. Um, Cleve Jones, um, longtime gay rights activist, uh, creator of the Names Project, um, AIDS Memorial Quill, uh, when he you know talks about the 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 AIDS pandemic to this day, um, will still say like my overwhelming feeling about that time and that situation um, is like incredible anger at the lack of government um response and i would imagine it's very difficult um for for people right seeing um the the response now versus then um because of the the, the association at that time with a marginalized community i think what i've noticed you know it's it's always Twitter that tends to be the more angry um, when individuals speaking, just Canadian politics are like tweeting Justin Trudeau and they're like, why haven't you done this? And why haven't you done that? And that's a big difference between HIV AIDS when it was a marginalized community and there were politicians that didn't want to have to do anything, didn't want to have to put any money towards it because it was going to lose votes for them. And, Socially, it's like, you know, gays were nothing, right? So who cares? Um, now this is the whole world. And it's a very different situation. Yes, we know we've already talked about it. Different countries are handling things in a different way. But for those countries that are actually doing something, it, it, what I'm beginning to understand is the complexity. If we haven't talked about a universal basic income or some sort of a situation like that that makes sure everyone has a basic level of income security. Well, now we're talking about it and we might not be putting into place uh, something that's going to be long-term and actually become that model. But we are certainly, because of this pandemic, being forced to look at um sort of a, like a, a makeshift shack of a version that we may actually have to formalize into a proper structure that protects society in the future. So we are in a very different place where I think as long as we can see that our politicians, municipal and in Canada, provincial or statewide in the States and then federally are actively doing 
the right thing, are being honest, are daily being transparent, are telling us what's happening. Even if different states or different provinces are doing different things simply because they have things set up differently, the transparency and the honesty will be the kind of leadership that people are seeking. And sort of to wrap up this thought and going right back to what you were talking about, David, with a lack of trust in leaders, leadership is given to people. True leadership is given to people who recognize that the person who is doing something for the betterment of a group or society or a country has that positive intention to make things better. And then the people following or supporting that person say, here, take the power and make this better. Otherwise, you have a dictatorship or you have an oligarch or you have something else. And that's what builds distrust and prejudice and racism and xenophobia. And that don't play out well in a pandemic. Now, I, I think uh, I, you know, it's funny because I just wrote a little note uh, here is that I think I think what's happened in the United States is that uh, we've become very apathetic about our politicians and our politics. Someone said to me uh, years ago that nobody cares about politics unless it affects them directly. Well, now it is, right? So uh, the, I think the only way that, that we're going to fix any of this is that if people get off their couches and off of their, uh, you know, out of their social media and actually start getting involved, which is how democracy is supposed to work, is to actually get involved and, and uh, you know, calling up their politicians, you know, finding someone that you, that you can build trust in and helping them get elected and, uh, you know, sort of a ground up uh, reassessment of what, like, what is America? What is, what do we want to be? Because that was that question that came up before. Uh, and I know it's not this. It's not what's happening right now. Uh, I mean, I know that I think, you know, Bernie Sanders dropped out. So now we've yeah. got a, uh, we've got to make a decision. I hope to God he picks a, a strong running mate, Biden. But um, mm. he, I think the only way out of this, in the same way that when I joined ACT UP and all these other people uh, were part of this thing, that you have to get involved and you can't mm. sit back and wait for other people to do it because that's what's been happening and it's become this stagnant, narcissistic knot of craziness. So mm. uh, I think people have to, you have to get involved uh, yeah. and stop waiting uh, for, you know, some parental figure to take care of it for you, because those aren't the people that are in power right now. Yeah. Well, perhaps if I end this with, with two questions and we'll go through the first one, we'll all answer. I'll ask um, Jeff and then David. So, and this can sometimes seem funny, but it's just, it's language and it's reframing, but what's the beauty that you're seeing as a result of this pandemic? What's the silver lining? It opens the possibility to articulate and work for uh, a new vision of humanity. And David? Yeah. Uh I'm going to I'm going to stay on a a local level. Um mm -hmm. I had a moment last week. Uh Seth and I went out to support one of our local restaurants that's doing uh takeout and we live in kind of a cool little neighborhood with a lot of startups and stuff. And 
to walk down the street and see all of these people, all of my neighbors uh, at a safe distance from each other, supporting these businesses that would be closed in another time, uh, standing outside. I mean, and they all have their own little systems like footprints that you stay six feet apart. Uh, And so I guess it's this on a local level, uh, this amazing innovation and this uh, surprisingly uh, refreshing feeling of community on, on a local level that uh, is very heartening to me um, because I uh, it sort of goes back to what I was saying before with the internet that we're all so in our heads and into our, what everybody's thinking about us. But this is sort of bringing out this, um, this compassion that I haven't seen physically because as you, as we looked down the street, like every, all these little places had, you know, a couple people standing outside, you know, keeping these businesses going uh, in their own way, which I thought was uh, really awesome and heartwarming. I would, I would probably echo bits of both of uh, what both of you said, Uh, you know, similarly just seeing the aspects of beautiful humanity that's, that's coming forth and the individuals that are, you know, going out of their way to volunteer and to help. Or this morning I was reading about a a group of people that are organizing these um, care baskets with food and, and other things. And they're putting them down where there's a lot of homeless people in Toronto, like literally living under the freeways. And the person was aghast that in 15 minutes, 50 bags were gone. Um, And you think, to some extent, maybe that was handled by an organization, but now it's individuals that are saying, I, I, I can't accept this situation as it is. I want to go help in some way. People are feeling this need, and that's a good thing. So I'm the just, final question. Sorry, go ahead. Uh, just one more quick story, um, yeah. kind of along the same lines, and I, I should have brought this one up first, is that uh, I was lucky enough to, uh, I can't say I was directly involved to help them find people, but a an architectural firm in uh, Buffalo, Canon Design, uh, put out a call uh, for people that that sew that have sewing machines in their house, and they had come up in talking to the medical profession, uh, I think nationally about what the right kind of mask would be to put over the N95 mask so that they could keep you know like a nurse could keep using that, but they would have something that they could throw out. And they came up with this really clever uh, design. All you had to do is cut, I think it was an eight-inch square, and you f- kind of folded it like origami, and you uh, drew a pattern on it and cut it out and sewed it into a mask. Mm-hmm. And then they asked people to uh, sew. And it, it started out with uh, the local theater community here and then spread to the film community because every theater in Buffalo has uh, someone that sews costumes. And they asked for an initial uh, 100, ironically, for the Evergreen, which was used to be AIDS Community Services. And they ended up with 350 masks in the first week. Uh, uh, and that now has become, it's, it's growing exponentially as more and more organizations are realizing that this mask design is working. Uh, and so the, the need for it is growing, as are the number of people sewing in their homes. Mm-hmm. So like innovation and community sort of intertwine with each other. Uh, and it's beautiful. Dis- disruption certainly affords the the possibility for creativity as a, as a need 
you know, a lot of businesses are retooling uh, in different ways to to provide things that are needed. Distilleries are producing hand sanitizer because they're alcohol based, right? So what would be the most important lesson that you've, you've taken from the pandemic so far or action that you yourself are taking as a result? Uh, Jeffrey. I think it's an opportunity to, you know, focus on uh, what, what's really um, essential. Mm. And you know, we're, when we're forced to slow down, does it does it make us you know see um you know was i doing a bunch of stuff that i i felt like i uh should be doing um or that you know was i doing it um you know to to because i thought it was going to please other people or was it like really fulfilling you know me and my vision and my purpose and so now we have this opportunity to to reconsider um that you know what what we're doing what what's really important um what, what do we want to be doing with our uh lives and and putting our um focus and energy on because I, I i think our our time and our energy and our focus is one of the the biggest resources for um social change uh so and you know and I think we could see that is is happening on an individual level, a community level, uh, and a more um, structural level as well. So I've you know really been thinking about um, those questions and like what is it that that I want to to do uh, that that I feel really aligned with that's going to have the most um, impact, and then go from there. That's great. I, I can hear that in your voice too, Jeffrey. There's a, uh, a comfort. It's like there's been an awareness um, that's opened up perhaps because for many people, I know you're still working um, and teaching and delivering content <laughs> in a way mm -hmm. that maybe you're not used to, but for many people that maybe don't have work right now who are at home and are trying to figure out what to do with themselves, they're having this opportunity for reflection. They're no longer like, oh, I've got to get to work. I've got to do this. My boss needs this. What am I going to do next time? Oh my God, I'm tired. I got to go home. I got to get groceries. And now they're like, huh. <laughs> <laughs> what about uh, you, David? <laughs> I, you, just, you just said it. Uh, I made yeah. a joke the other day on Facebook that the new workout is uh, climbing the walls. <laughs> uh, that's good um, and I, um, I i'm one of those people that has a really hard time uh sitting still most of the time and i uh this is forcing me to slow down and i'm realizing that uh like last night if i want to stay up until three o'clock in the morning and get up at 10 it's okay uh if i want to slow down and taste my food uh it's okay it's probably a good thing Right. So, yeah. uh, you know, somebody was saying that uh, uh, just in reference to like the earth itself, that this is sort of a, a pause moment with everything, the uh, destruction mm -hmm. that we're doing to the planet and everything like his industry is shut down. So mm -hmm. the pollution is less. And, you know, maybe this is a pause on, uh, you know, a, a brief and small one on the on the warming thing, the global warming thing. So it's uh, I guess it's that. And it is, again, this is really hard for me, but it's okay to chill. It's okay to sit on the couch and, you know, you know, watch TV or read a book or, and, and as opposed to some of the stuff I'm hearing, 
that people are saying, you know, you need more discipline. Because uh, I do have that book that I'm supposed to be writing and that screenplay and those paintings that I want to do. Uh, and I do have moments where I'm thinking, well, you know, you should be doing something productive. But I also think it's okay to just relax and be, uh, which I usually don't allow myself. So I think uh, in a way, that's one of the, the big positives of what's happening right now is, you know, there's time for a little uh, introspection. That's great. I mean, I I take a good amount from what you shared there, David, and I I, I don't know how to answer this one quite myself. I'll, I'll focus just on one thing because there's been a number of things and I've spoken about them in some ways throughout the call, but more so, I guess it's recognizing my own personal growth curve and, and things that I've wanted to either improve or change. And I, I've definitely been a fighter in the past and especially in advocacy. And it's, it's been a couple of years where I've really focused on, you know, there's a time and a place for getting up in arms, but this whole love wins, it sounds like a cliche, but it's very different when we lead from a place of connection and support and empathy and serving. And that's does not mean ignoring your own needs. I'm a huge advocate for personal responsibility and self-care because if you don't do those things, then you can't um, make a difference in the world at all. Uh, if you can't make a difference in your own personal world, <laughs> forget it. And it's it's shaping some of my thoughts going forward. It's something I've been working on this week to maybe deliver like a big well-being uh, live seminar in this time. And it's just making me look at if I'm focusing always on 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 queer issues, like right now, sure, that's important, but it's not the most important thing. It's just looking at how we are all connected as a, as a global society. And that's uh, um, seeing what other people are doing. Maybe that's the lesson for me is very humbling. And it makes me ask, like, am I doing enough? Um, and how can I use my talents um, to, to, to help right now? No, I, I think that's, uh, that's beautiful. Uh, and certainly I think I'm, uh, I check in on people, uh, calling people out when they're doing some of the things we've been talking about, mm -hmm. uh, judging and all that. Uh, so I, I feel like I, it's, it's weird for me because I am feeling the old days in this, but it's with, uh, uh, I survived it. And so I feel somewhat of a responsibility to uh in whatever humble way i can to try to show other people how what i learned from that experience mm -hmm. yeah i think it would be you know i just think the whole conversation that that we uh have had really illustrates the necessity of how, how useful uh it it would be and how important it is to have like intergenerational uh, dialogue about um mm -hmm. the, these issues that get people coming together to, to talk about um what what's going on and thinking about solutions and things we can um do right whether that's like individual uh self-work or the the community or beyond wow i mean we could keep going on and talking and talking but i think we've we could. covered a <laughs> lot of ground i hope we have um i really appreciate the uh unique insights from 
both of you and how we were able to contrast and compare uh, different ideas. And I guess my way of wrapping this up is to say that it's a complex issue, but it's not an impossible one. Um, that I think if we all lead from first seeking to understand, we're going to make a lot more progress because there are people that are doing the things day to day. I think David, you brought this up and and Jeff as well, that the individuals who are on the front lines, whether that be a grocery store person or somebody in the hospital, um, these are the people who in many ways need our support the most right now. And then make your voice heard. Like in the United States, you've got various elections going on. You've got hopefully an election coming up in some way, shape, or form in November. And you guys in some way have more work cut out for you to be the voice of reason, the voice of critical thinking, um, the voice of educating. Um, Because people, like I said earlier, will seek and give power to the person who they think is really being a leader and is demonstrating that they are serving the community for the greater good. And with that, I thank you for listening and I hope you've enjoyed this uh, special edition of the Think Queerly Leadership Interview.